0: major challenge to proclaiming the gospel, not just in our day, but in any age, has been this universal notion that man is inherently good. That man, even though from time to time can do good, can think good, might have good intentions towards other human beings, uh, to think that at his core, man is essentially good, that is what is universally accepted. And it's why many gospel uh, presentations generally focus on sin as just something that separates us from God. It's, it's things we do that keep us apart from God rather than something that is fundamentally wrong with us deep down at our core. That at the heart of man, at our nature level, we're not good. We're actually evil. And it's what God's word teaches us concerning the nature of man, and the condition of man. Now, today's passage is going to give us a portrait of what Solomon calls the worthless person. It's going to be interesting. And it presents to us someone that through his thoughts and actions does wickedness because their heart is wrong. Their heart is perverted. And we're going to read here some things some things that says God hates about people. Not just things, but about people, and especially about what that person, that particular person, says, does, and is. Proverbs, the sixth chapter, we're going to read from 12 through 19. Hear the words of the Lord. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. Winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. These are the words of the Lord. Now, this is a a unique character sketch that Solomon teases out and draws out for his son. Remember, these are lessons to Solomon's son. And it's a depiction of what Solomon calls the worthless person. We're going to call him the troublemaker. And this person is the one that the son needs to be on the lookout for and avoid being associated with this type of individual. It's a caricature of a wicked person. It's a person committed, who's committed their ways to evil, who stands in the opposing path of the way of wisdom. Now, there are going to be seven attitudes and actions referenced in this first section that we're going to look at. Right, that describe this particular individual, seven marks. And then in the second section, we're going to see a, a closely connected uh, uh, teaching here as to the seven things that the Lord hates, specifically concerning the troublemaker in verses 16 through 19. And what links these two sections, because as you read them, you, you're kind of seeing them as two disjointed teachings, but they're not. What links them here is this catalog of body parts mentioned, that fits both the attitudes and behavior of the troublemaker with the second part of the things that the Lord hates. But look how he starts here, a worthless person, a wicked man. NIV translates it a troublemaker and a villain. Now that word worthless, you're going to see several times in the Old Testament. There are several references to worthless people, worthless individuals, right? Some of the sons of, of the high priests were called worthless, right? This was their estimation uh, in God's eyes. Now, that word worthless is the Hebrew word Belial. When we transliterate that word into English, we get the name, the noun Belial, right? You've heard that name mentioned, Belial, right? That word worthless, when you see there, is that Hebrew word, and it conveys this aspect of something that has no use whatsoever. It is worthless, no value, something worthless. Wicked speaks about a base person, a villain, a scoundrel. It's not an endearing term whatsoever, right? It's a term of derision. This individual, as mentioned in the Old Testament, of, again, individuals, actually some kings of pagan nations were also uh, deemed as worthless, utilizing this word, is a person who agitates against all that is good. These are individuals that are wicked through and through. They are fundamentally depraved. Now, it might unsettle you a bit to think that a person could be qualified as being worthless. I mean, don't don't all human beings have worth? Don't all human beings have value, inherent value and dignity and worth? Yes. Yes, humanity does because we're all image bearers. But God's word clarifies that there is a quality of character that is classified as being of no use because of radical wickedness. There are some whose behavior the Lord abhors and detests, and he classifies them as worthless. Now, later in Jewish literature, and we're going to see in the New Testament here in a second, Belial becomes a name synonymous for the devil. Not initially, but eventually, in Jewish literature um, and mythology even, and then in the New Testament, by New Testament times, Belial just means Satan, the devil. Look at 2 Corinthians 6.15. Paul asks this question. What accord has Christ with Belial? Satan, the chief and prince of demons. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What is the answer to that? None, right? None. There is no accord with having Christ can have with Belial. There is no partnership or portion that a believer can share with an unbeliever. They are incompatible. So the son is not to associate with the troublemaker. Why? Because it's incompatible to do so. The teaching, the values, the virtue of the individual who's classified as worthless is incompatible. Cannot be a partner with the one who's walking in the way of wisdom following his father's teaching. That troublemaker will take you off the path of wisdom and turn you to the path of folly and destruction. Likewise, we are not to associate with those who are evil, those who practice wickedness. We're not to be in partnership with the world. There is a call to holiness implicit in the teaching we find here in Proverbs, consistent with what we know in the New Testament. In that same passage there in Corinthians, Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not, right? 2 Corinthians 6.14. Right? What's the imagery there? That the imagery there of, uh, is when a pair of oxen are yoked together in order to plow a field. What happens if you have mismatched oxen? You have one massive ox, right, that's strong and powerful, and a, and a scrawny one who's weak what's going to happen? Do you, are, you, are, they going to, are they going to plow a straight field, a straight road? No, not at all, right? The stronger one is going to pull in a certain direction, and the weak one's just going to get dragged along, right? There's a spiritual principle for us in place. That's why Paul says we can't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's, it's an incompatibility. Inevitably, you will be dragged off the path of wisdom, off the way of wisdom, and oftentimes we think we can practice some type of relational evangelism, but we're not strong in our faith. We're not strong in our convictions. We're not grounded in spiritual principles and in God's Word. And so we think we can associate with a... Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't be friends with people who don't know Jesus. But people who actively practice wickedness and evil and hate God and hate the things of God, we're not to be in partnership with them. That's not just something we preach to our kids. Do not marry an unbeliever, which they should not do for this very same reason. But don't, become, don't get into a business relationship with people like that also. Don't spend your time and hang out with people who not only don't want anything to do with God, they are actively suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. They hate God. They hate the things of God. And furthermore, the reality is you never open up your mouth to share Jesus with them. You think, well, if I can just you know, show them that I'm a good person, they're going to come to know Jesus. No, they're not. No one has come to know Jesus because they've rubbed shoulders with a good person. Right? There's a lot of people who do some morally good things out there who are not Christians. What does that say? No. Our word is a verbal faith, right? A verbal proclamation, a verbal confession. We declare Jesus is Lord. And in just declaring Jesus and Lord, right, we just set hell into a frenzy. Right? So when those people who practice wickedness, love wickedness, love the dark, know that we are believers and we're standing in our faith, they're not going to want to associate with you. And that's okay. Right? It's the way it should be. Okay? When we yoke ourselves again with an unbeliever, again, we cannot expect to stay on the path of wisdom. And the path of wisdom is a movement towards Christ. Right? So that's what Solomon's saying here. Son, whose voice will you listen to? There are those who are worthless, they're troublemakers, they're wicked people. Are you going to listen to their voice or are you going to listen to my voice, the way of wisdom? There's a choice always. Everything the Father presents to the Son in these lessons are rival voices to the teachings of wisdom and to the teachings of the Father. And we need to learn to see those things for ourselves in the world today. Rival voices everywhere, everywhere. Whose voice are we going to listen to? Now, let's look quickly at these seven marks, this sevenfold description by which uh, the son can identify, right, the the troublemaker. Like Solomon's saying, here's what to be on the lookout for. The first, he says, is someone who has crooked speech, crooked speech. What is is the opposite of crooked? Straight, right? Crooked, we have talked about before, is, 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 is a kind of a metaphor for unrighteousness. An unrighteous individual, an unrighteous person whose speech is unrighteous. The speech is crooked. It's not the straight, righteous speech of wisdom. It is speech that is dishonest. It is someone who goes around speaking dishonestly, telling lies and speaking half-truths, which are lies, right? There are people who use their mouths to speak deceptively. That is completely against wisdom, right? Because wisdom is truth. Because God is truth, right? God's word is truth. He is truth. Everything about God is truth. But the troublemaker takes truth and distorts it. And twists it up for their own nefarious means and uses. They distort the truth. Bend the truth. But what do we know about truth? Truth is not malleable. Contrary to what our culture says, you don't have your truth and I have my truth and that person has their own version of the truth and all of them are equal. They are not. There's a truth and there are lies and that's it. That's it. Don't, Don't buy that stupidity. It's wicked to even begin to think that. That's an offense to God to declare that there is a truth apart from him that is on equal footing with what he has revealed about himself. And what's truth? There is no such thing. So he says, the person of crooked speech, that's a mark of the troublemaker. Avoid them. Now, these next three marks mentioned of the seven are actually nonverbal gestures that the troublemaker employs in his crookedness. Winking, signaling, pointing. They are sinister gestures. These are things done behind their victim's back, unknown to them, and used to signal the troublemaker's associates. Because what we see through, kind of through all of this, and it's going to be unpacked and revealed throughout the different Proverbs uh, that Solomon writes to his son, is that the troublemaker has allies. He's got followers. He's got Twitter friends and Facebook friends and all of this stuff who agree with him and understand these nonverbal gestures and they're in on the trouble. He winks with his eyes, he says. Now, When we think of winking, we think of it as something playful, right? Some of your husbands wink at your spouses, right? That can be a little flirty. Sometimes we wink, right, when we want to let someone know what we just said. You know, we actually meant something different, right? It's done in a playful way. There's nothing hidden about that. We're joking. But that's not the kind of winking that the troublemaker does. His winking with his eye is something malevolent. It's a secret communication meant to exclude the victim. Because who are they winking at? They're not winking at the victim. Troublemakers are winking at one another. Because they're in on the play over here. The victim's unaware of the wicked scheming that is going on behind their back and at their expense. These are people, again, who are plotting harm, hurt, or something towards someone else. Uh, And they're using speech and they're using these gestures... To bring about the wicked ends here. Signal with his feet. These are nonverbal uh, cues here. Meant to point to the fact that the orientation of this person's whole being <clears throat> is on the path of folly and wickedness. Right? When we're talking about the eyes and now we're talking about the feet. It's like we're saying from head to toe. right? Every gesture of this person's body is devious. It's deceptive. It means to harm and do wickedness they point with their finger now there's a lot of different interpretations of this as i've read different commentaries on this passage here he could it could be the troublemaker maybe giving instructions to an associate to to an associate maybe pointing to them or pointing them at something they can do pointing in misdirection pointing in an accusatory manner could be a gesture like when someone crosses their fingers behind their back and they say something but ultimately what are they saying what they're saying is a lie, right? They don't mean what they're saying. It's something deceptive, and that's kind of the, the point here. The son is not only to just pay attention to the words that are being spoken, but even then sometimes because the words are deceptive and false and lies, right? You also got to look at body language, right? Most of our communication is nonverbal. That actually carries more force than our verbal language, right? Watch a person's body language as they're talking to you. It speaks a lot. And Oftentimes, you can tell if a person is being deceptive with their words because their body language betrays what they're saying there. The troublemaker's words and gestures are devious, deceptive, and meant to denigrate. So what do we need? We need wisdom. We need wisdom to discern the intentions and actions and be on the lookout for this person who exhibits these particular attitudes and actions, their trouble, avoid them. Right? We tell our kids that. Stay away from troublemakers. How many of you told your kids that, right? Stay away from people who are looking for trouble, who are trouble, who do nothing but trouble, right? And get into trouble, avoid them. This is, this is what's happening here. Then he says in, in, in uh, the, the fifth mark here is that with perverted heart devises evil. A perverted heart well, that's not the first time we see the heart here, is it? Again, it's a matter of the heart. It all comes back to the heart. we said the heart is the command center for the entire being. What's in your heart overflows and spills out into every facet of your life, through your mouth, through your hands, through your feet, actions. The heart directs the mouth. Right, Proverbs four twenty three. we saw from the heart flows what? The springs of life. What's inside flows out to the outside. And the troublemaker's heart here is not fresh water. It's polluted, corrupted water, right? It's perverted, perverted a flow coming from from him. It deviates from what is good and right. From a distorted and disordered heart can only come distorted and disordered attitudes and actions and words and gestures And Jesus said that out of the overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks, right? The heart drives and directs all of those things. And this individual has a perverted heart. Crooked heart. A twisted heart. So what comes out of their mouth and their gestures and what they do can only be twisted and perverted. Again, devising evil. Now... I think a little sharper translation for this. If you notice uh, in your Bible there, it says, with perverted heart devises evil and then puts a comma. And then we have the next phrase here, continually sowing discord. I, I think the CSV translates this a little sharper uh, because in, in, in the, the Hebrew grammar here, that word continually is not actually modifying uh, the following phrase, but, but the previous one, devises, devises evil. Actually, continually devises evil. The CSV renders it he always plots evil, always plots evil with perversity in his heart. Always, continually plotting, devising, crafting evil. That's what the troublemaker's always doing. Never ending cycle, a never ending outflow from the heart of practicing and thinking about and doing evil. This last phrase, devising evil continually calls to mind God's assessment of mankind before divine wrath was poured out in judgment in Genesis chapter 6. Look at Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, in the earth and that every intention, not some intention, but every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This was God's evaluation of the sinful, wicked heart of man. We are, brothers and sisters, by nature, depraved, sinful, and wicked. We don't like to think of ourselves that way. We don't like to think of others that way. We, we, we want to believe that there is good in man. That they're morally good through and through, and there's just some bad apples in the bunch. Some of them are rotten, but, but not us. And, and not most of the people. We are not, certainly not our kids and our family members, and our close friends, and people we go to church with. No, no. But that's not what God reveals in his words, brothers and sisters. It's not what he reveals about the nature and condition of man. What do we see from the fall forward? We see corruption. We see wickedness, our being corrupted by sin. The stain of sin permeating our entire being through and through. That does not mean that man is as bad as he can be. And it doesn't mean that man isn't capable of doing some good things or having some good intentions and thoughts towards others. But rather, that the rot of sin goes so much far deeper than you and I think or want to believe about us. The truth is, from the fall forward, we are not able to not sin. It's what we do, it's who we are at the core. 1689. London Baptist Confession in chapter 6, paragraph 4, renders it like this regarding the depraved state of mankind. All actual transgressions arise from this first corruption. That first corruption being Adam's sin. Adam being the federal head of humanity, the head of humanity. In Adam, we all sin is what the scripture teaches us. By it, we are thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic toward all that is good. And we are completely inclined toward all that is evil. That's the condition of mankind. Completely inclined towards all that is evil. Not good. Evil. Now, we don't consider ourselves evil because we compare ourselves to what? To whom? To others, right? Right? Well, in, in, you know, in regards to this person, I am a far better individual than I am. I'm not a serial killer or rapist or thief. I don't lie as much as they do. I don't curse as much as they do. I do good things. Who are we not comparing ourselves to? Yeah, to, to, to God, right? To the Lord, the holy God, the perfect God, right? who's the standard of what is right and good and, and holy and just and true. But this is what God's words teach. Our hearts are inclined towards all that is evil. Which is why he says we need a new heart. Our compass, the north star for our heart has always been towards what is evil and wicked. And God promises, I'm going to give you a new heart that will give you new affections and new desires to obey me and love me and follow me. That's what he promised. Thankfully, that's what we have in Christ Jesus. But this person's heart devises evil Continually. And lastly, he talks about this individual continually in our translation. Sowing what? Discord. Sowing division. The troublemaker stirs up trouble. That's what they do. Proverbs 15, 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife but he who is slow to anger quiets contention, right? I I just see that it's just someone who loves to stir trouble. It's a person of contention. They love to drive a wedge in relationships and break relationships apart, break up people who are close friends and close brothers, and they sow strife and they sow discord. They like to disrupt. That's the troublemaker. That's this individual. We're going to see that again here in just a few moments. Now, there's a great parallel teaching in Proverbs 16 that really shows a lot of these things. Let's look at it quickly in Proverbs 16, 27 through 30. And look what it lists as first. A worthless man plots evil. His speech is like a scorching fire. Think of that imagery. A dishonest man spreads strife. And a whisperer separates close friends. You ever had that experience? A whisperer. Driving a wedge in your relationships. Yeah, I know that one pretty good. A man of violence entices his neighbor. Leads him in a way that is not good, right? Leads someone off into the path of wickedness and evil. Verse 30, whoever winks with his eyes. There's that again. Winks with his eyes, plans dishonest things, right? This is a shifty, shady individual. He who purses his lips brings evil to pass. Just see the comparison there. The same troublemaking characteristics... Of this worthless person, inflammatory speech, dishonest speech, spreading strife, sowing discord. And Solomon is teaching his son, watch out for those who exhibit these characteristics, their trouble, mark them and avoid them. So, what's the destiny of this individual with these seven marks? Well, we see it in verse 15. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly, in a moment. He'll be broken beyond healing. It's devastating. Devastating. That, that, that transitional word there, therefore, is, is linking the troublemaker's destiny to his characteristics, to his marks. His dishonest speech, his devious gestures, and perverted heart. The calamity they brought upon others through their malevolence is now going to boomerang and come upon them. There is a reciprocal effect here. They imposed calamity. They brought disruption and calamity. And now it is going to come upon them. It's judgment. It's divine judgment. And though the Lord is not named here as the agent that brings this calamity, we see that link in the very next verse that mentions the Lord. It's the Lord. He is the agent that brings about this particular judgment. Now those two adverbs there, suddenly and in a moment, highlight the unexpected nature of the judgment when it comes. Right, it's the the unexpected character of it. It'll come. It'll seem like a surprise. It's not a surprise to God. Like that's the inevitable outcome. But it's a surprise to the troublemaker and and maybe those who know the troublemaker and are watching the troublemaker. It's going to come upon them. It seems as if suddenly, it looks like they were doing good. It looks like they were prospering and they were getting away with everything that they were doing to others their dishonesty and their actions and thoughts and deeds and the wickedness of their heart and in a moment they're broken in a moment they're taken out and down for the count broken beyond healing this is devastating the the imagery there in the original has to do with like a ship just breaking apart upon the rocks Shipwrecking and just fragmenting and completely coming apart. That's what happens to the troublemaker. That's their end. That is their end. It's what they deserve. And they're beyond healing. Like there's no remedy for them. There's no cure. There's no one who can come with them and offer them healing. And, and can fix this broken, devastated outcome of their own malevolent life. They're broken without healing. Their destiny is eternal destruction and death. And you and I know that apart from Christ, that is the outcome of our lives, isn't it? That's us. Like We deserve the calamity to come upon us because of our own sin and wickedness. We deserve to be utterly and completely broken like this beyond healing. And we know that apart from Christ, there is no healing. There is no deliverance from from this life, from this nature. That apart from Christ, we are this troublemaker. We are this worthless person. Look what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, this is not an exhaustive list he's mentioning here. But I think we can all identify somewhere in this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will what? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't. In our sinful condition with this perverted heart, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And if that was the last word on the matter, how miserable and pitiful we'd be. Hopelessly doomed. But that's not the end, is it? Verse 11. And such were some of you. I love that. But you were what? Washed. Sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise God for that. Our outcome was to be broken beyond healing. That's how we need to see ourselves in passages like this. It's easy to go, oh, that's really a vile person. That's not me. It is you. And it is me. But God, right? But you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on here through 16 through 19. This second section that is linked seven things the lord hates and it's connected again to the first of this catalog of unhealthy body parts of the troublemaker now you're going to see this a couple of times in proverbs right six things and then a seventh thing right this is an ancient teaching tool it's presenting a list but again it's not telling you everything there is right it's just saying here are some of the things that god hates that's a way of looking at it because there are more things that god hates but these are listed here for us right Uh, It doesn't include everything. But this one in particular illustrates the depravity and perverted heart of the troublemaker. And now we have the Lord's name brought into this thing, right? These are the things that are an abomination to the Lord. And now this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, right? Lord. It's only mentioned a few times throughout Proverbs, right? So this this is... Something that the covenant God of Israel, the covenant God, those who are in covenant with Him, these are things that God hates, that God detests, that are an abomination to Him. He hates them. Now, we don't like to think of God hating anything. Why? Because we're taught from you, you shouldn't hate anything or anybody. We don't like our little kids saying, I hate this. many times have you corrected your children when they say that? Now, you don't really mean you hate it, right? We don't want them to say it, right? Because... Hateful is is not seen as a virtue, right? The hateful person is not someone who is liked, right? They're vilified. Hatred is, you know, associated with racism and bigotry and all sorts of stuff. Nobody likes to be called hateful. No one wants to be known as that person that hates this or that, right? That's, That's what we know. But here we're shown that there are things which God hates. That word abomination means detestable to God. Like It makes him want to throw up just to be a little more crass with that. Things that offend him. But we got to remember God is not like us, is he? And when God hates, it's not like we hate. God's hatred is not like ours. Ours is what? Ours is tainted by our sin nature. Even when we say we hate something that is evil, right, we, we, we sometimes are dancing dangerously close to the line of, of moving into to sinful hatred. It's very simple to do for us, right? We don't know how to hate perfectly and justly and right. Our hatred is misplaced at times. We say we hate something, but usually we don't really understand what's going on. We don't have the full picture. We don't know all of the variables in a situation. So we'll say that we hate, and we're inevitably sometimes wrong in these things. But God's hatred stems from His holiness. They are inseparable, and when God says he hates something, he is perfectly justified and right in hating that thing. And it is not a violation of his goodness or his character or his holiness. What we know from Scripture is that God hates sin and wickedness and evil. But these are not just inanimate things hanging out there that God hates. Because notice our passage does not just include things that God hates. It mentions people that God hates as well. God hates people? What do you think? (laughs) Nobody wants to answer that one, huh? We see that billboard on I-4. God loves everybody. You know, God's love. You know, God doesn't hate you. This these kind of things should challenge our concept that God loves everybody in the same way. He does not. And if, you've, if you were taught God loves everyone equally the same way, it doesn't matter what they do, you don't know God, you don't know his word. And for some of you, you're like, that really bothers me. That's okay. You're not God, right? <laughs> he is, and it's not incompatible with his nature, his being, and his character. God has a holy hatred for evildoers and the wicked. I mean, just two Psalms, and there's so many more here, passages, but Psalm 5, 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies, right? We're talking about lies here in our passage, right? The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm eleven, five. The Lord tests the righteous, But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Like, what do you do with passages like that? We want to excuse those things away. No, no, he hates the sin. But how do you separate the sin from the sinner? When sin is inherent in the nature of man, we are born with that nature. Can't separate sin from sinner. And I want you to think about how great our need for salvation and forgiveness and of a Savior is if this is how God views sin and how God views sinners. A great need we have. A great need we have. And how seriously we should take sin in our own heart and in our own life and seek to put it to death by the Spirit of God. Because this is how God sees it. Now let's look at these seven things that God hates. And we're going to go through these pretty quick here. Haughty eyes, haughty eyes, arrogant eyes, right? Who's this? This is the, the prideful person, right? That, that looks down their nose at other people, that thinks of themselves more highly than they ought, that thinks themselves better than others, smarter than them, better than them, morally superior to them. But what do we know about pride? Pride goes before the fall. Indeed, it does, right? They, they, and we've seen, we see this pattern in Scripture, Pride was at the heart of Lucifer's sin. What does the scripture reveal to us? Reveals to us that Lucifer wanted his throne to ascend above the throne of God. He wanted to be over God, right? This pride, this arrogance in his heart. He fell. Pride was at the heart of Adam and Eve's sin. Why? They wanted to be like God. They wanted to know knowledge of good and evil apart from God. They wanted to be like God themselves. They fell. All sin is pride at its root because we think we know better than God. When we sin, we are putting ourselves in the position of God. I can do this. I'm entitled to this. There are no consequences. I know better. But God exalts the humble and he casts down the arrogant and the haughty. The one who has a right estimation of themselves and does not seek to elevate themselves at another's expense. That is the individual that is exalted. But God hates the prideful person. God hates the prideful person. A lying tongue. That speech that's used to deceive others again. we We looked at this already, right? The tongue that spreads falsehood. The indication here is that that is this person's primary language they don't speak truth. They, they are fluent in lies. They love to lie, right? Their, their father is the father of lies, right? Well, Jesus said, if, if, if you lie, that, that's your dad, right? Your daddy is not Jesus. It's not God. The father, it is Satan. Liars do not speak truth. Those who preach a false gospel are liars, and God hates them. I'm going to camp on this for just a few moments, Because if you haven't noticed this yet in all that we've looked at so far and what we're going to see coming up in Proverbs that has a lot to say about what comes out of our mouth and how much our mouths get us into trouble. It is a big deal. Do not minimize this. Do not excuse it away in your own life. We have to really evaluate this. Look here. We see just in these few verses how much God hates words that are not of the truth. Speaking lies, speaking dishonestly, crooked speech, lying tongue, false witness. Look at that. He hates words that are not of the truth and are used for evil purposes. And it all's coming from the heart. The heart showcases. Our mouths showcase everything that is at the very center of our heart. It just comes out. You can't help it. You can't help it. What's in there will always bubble up and come out of your mouth. So nothing you say is neutral. Not a single word you let pass through your lips is neutral. What did Jesus say we would be giving an account to God for? He said we will give account to God for every empty, idle, careless word we speak. That terrifies me. (laughs) I've said a lot of empty, idle, and careless words in my life. And so have you. And so we continue to do, in many ways. Joking, coarse joking, foolishness, through lying, through deceit, through anger, through jealousy. Nothing we say is neutral. And God detests falsehood. God detests everything that is not of the truth. It's contrary to his very nature, brothers and sisters. God is truth. Again, everything he says is truth. His word is truth. Every promise he declares to us is truth. Every warning he gives us is truth. And when we use our mouth to distort the truth, when we use our mouth to change facts and details, that are contrary to what they truthfully are, when we use lies to protect ourselves, to avoid consequences of our sinful behavior, to keep from being exposed, or we lie to make others believe things about us that are not truthful, we are not going in the way of wisdom. We're going away from it. We're moving away from the wisdom of God. God hates lying lips. He hates it, brothers and sisters. He hates it. A preacher I I, I listened to not long ago said this, our mouths are an arena of spiritual warfare. And how true that is. How true that is. Because we lie. And some of us lie real easily. But that's not new, right? We learn that from when we're little. Does anyone have to teach their children to lie? Not at all. Not at all. Did you eat that chocolate? No, no I didn't. And their face is, you know, covered in chocolate. they defiantly tell you, no I didn't do that? I wouldn't dare. My little kids know how to lie. Why? They're already, it's part of their nature. Not to teach them to do that. And then we grow up and we continue to lie. And some of those lies, we, we, we're going to classify them as little lies, right? Little lies. You're a few minutes late to work because you were up late playing video games or, or you were watching a movie or scrolling through social media and you just you didn't hear the alarm and you got up late and you're racing to work and you walk in and you tell your boss, my goodness, traffic was so backed up on I-4. Oh, man. I would have been 15 minutes early if it weren't for the traffic. We lie. We lie to protect ourselves. We lie to keep from being embarrassed. The problem is our little lies turn into bigger lies over time. And those little lies we tell to protect ourselves, to keep us from embarrassment, we tell bigger lies to protect ourselves from more drastic consequences or from being exposed to sinful behaviors and patterns in our life. We're not to be people of falsehood, brothers and sisters. We're to be people of the truth, following and resembling and mimicking our God who is truth. Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Man, do not lie. That's one of the one another's. So, in there with love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens. Don't lie to one another. Because I know you want to. And I know you do it. Do not lie to one another. God hates the lying tongue, brothers and sisters. God hates it. 3. Hands that shed innocent blood. This is the violent person who has no concern with killing an image bearer. They have no concern for God, for the things of God, so they could care less about someone who was made in the image of God and taking their life. They violate Genesis 9-6, right? the command implicit for all creation. Whoever sheds the blood of man, Genesis 9-6, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. It's the creation mandate. God establishes a law here of, of retribution here. A life for a life. In the Latin it's lex talionis. Right? With what you did and how you took a life shall your life be taken. That's God's word. That's God's law. All right? That's how serious the taking of a life is. But this individual, they don't care about shedding innocent blood, taking an innocent life. Now, Jesus, of course, ups the ante with murder, doesn't he? It's not just one of the Ten Commandments. He goes, let's move beyond that. Again, going back to the heart. Where does it start? Where do murderous thoughts and, 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 you know, and, and originate? In the heart, right? The deeds follow what's already in the heart. So you've already committed murder in your heart if you say you hate your brother and sister, if you use your words to, to kill, right? We use our words to murder. There not be people, again, who do that because God hates those who shed innocent blood. Heart that, again, devises wicked plans. We see this again, right? The repetition here. The heart, the epicenter of all the wicked words and schemes. The heart calculates. The heart computes. The heart invents all manner of wickedness, and God hates that. Now, this should not be the regenerate heart, right? The regenerate heart shouldn't be scheming evil. But the unregenerate heart, that's all, that's all it can do. That's all it can do. Feet that make haste to run to evil. Again, the imagery here is of the whole body in motion moving towards the evil that the person wants to do that's in their heart. There's no second to waste in doing what their evil heart has cooked up to do. And God hates that person. God hates that person who moves as quickly as possible to do what is evil. Wasting no time to engage in these evil things. False witness who breathes out lies. Breathes out lies, right? Every breath of their mouth is a falsehood. It's a lie. Lying is as natural to this person as his breathing. They're experts in lies. They cannot be counted on to give a truthful testimony. You know, have you ever known people like, you can't believe anything that comes out of their mouth? Like, they lie all the time. Because they're not people that are fun to be around. <laughs> You don't know if what they're saying to you is truth or not. Are they making up another story or what's going on here? He's, God says he hates a false witness, someone who bears false testimony. Now, this is, when you're talking about false witness, you're someone who is recounting something. Maybe you have witnessed, seen, or an eyewitness to, and this person comes up and presents something false. Again, they're expert liars, lying for a living. And seventh. One who sows discord among brothers. You see again this action of the troubled heart, the sinful, wicked heart of the worthless person. Their lies and scheming result in the severing and damaging of relationships between brothers and friends. These are people who despise unity. They are contentious, individuals, stirring up division. And they're in the church. This is not just out there in the world. They're in the church. We've had people in our church that way. Thank God they're not here anymore. Because all they do is just they're whispering. They're speaking behind other people's back. Right? Trying to destroy affections and relationships between individuals. Trying to gain allegiances for themselves. That's a wicked heart. Titus 3. Look what Titus 3, 10, 11 says. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person... Look, look at the words used here. Warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. God hates the person who seeks to divide brothers through lies and schemes. These the things that God hates, brothers and sisters. And to some degree, even though we're in Christ... We see some of those tendencies in our own heart, right? There's still the vestiges of of the taint of the sinful flesh in us that continues to want to do what does not comport with truth and wisdom and godliness. And God is showing us here through the Proverbs of the things he hates, and, and, and what he's doing is pointing us again to the path of wisdom, which is Christ, the wisdom of God and the wisdom from God. We read this caricature, a caricature of the troublemaker. And again, it's easy for us to say, we're not that vile individual. Like, that's a real villain. Like, that is an evil character there. That's not me. But again, we, we can't look at it that way, can we? Where there's wickedness in our own hearts and lives. We cannot fail to see ourselves as the wretched sinners that we are apart from Christ you and I are that troublemaker. Don't read this and look at someone else. Look at yourself. We are that worthless person. We are Belial. We are Belial. Paul quoting from the Old Testament, Romans chapter 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. their eyes. Doesn't that fit the description of the troublemaker we just read in Proverbs chapter 6? Paul writes that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. That's all of us. All of us are lumped into this. We are not good. We have never been good. There is and has always been only one who is good. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord, Only Him. And what did God allow the only good and innocent person to endure? All of the wickedness that worthless people could heap upon Him, He endured for us. As we move towards participation in the Lord's table here in just a few minutes, I want you to see what He endured at the hands of worthless people. Of troublemakers. Of evil plotters. Everything and everyone that God hates. Conspired and moved against the only innocent. The haughty eyes. You think of the religious leaders. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those of the Sanhedrin. Who all thought themselves morally superior to Jesus. Thought themselves closer to God because of their tradition and adherence to the laws. They were full of pride, arrogant, haughty eyes. They hated Jesus. The lying tongues, all of the lies spread about Jesus. How they sought to discredit him at every single turn from the start of his ministry. They twisted the word of God and hurled accusations, false accusations against him. Hands that shed innocent blood. Again, he was the only truly innocent the only sinless one. And they thought nothing of killing him, of taking his life, of shedding the blood of an innocent person to satisfy their own bloodthirst for their sinful pride. Hearts that devise wicked plans continually. Again, from the start of his ministry, the religious leaders were plotting and scheming and calculating how they could take Jesus down and out. Calculating these, these murderous plots than to seize him and killing him. Feet that make haste to run to evil. What did they do when they had their moment? They had their moment, man. They wasted no time in the middle of the night as Jesus was praying in the garden. They sent a squad of soldiers to, to seize him, arrest him, and to bring him to a sham trial. They wasted no time running to evil, rushing him to Pilate's house to have a death sentence passed. False witnesses who breathe out lies. Read the gospel accounts regarding that sham trial. Witness after witness brought forth presenting false testimony. Making up stuff about how he had blasphemed God and had set himself up to to overthrow Caesar. False witnesses. And sowing discord among brothers. One of his own. One of his own disciples, Judas, turns from him. And betrays him. All of the things that God hates were done to Jesus. All of those and more. But. Isaiah 53 tells us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds. We are healed. Listen, that troublemaker will be broken beyond healing. That is the destiny of the wicked and rebellious. But thanks to God, brothers and sisters, because of Christ, the wisdom of God and wisdom from God, we are healed. We are healed in him.